Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what's going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Welcome to another episode of the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Gray. Before we get started, the thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of mine, nor my guests, employers, past, present, or future. With that being said, my guest this evening is Rob Gresham. Rob is a veteran of the Army, 26 years. He holds the GCIA, GCIH uh, certifications through SANS, CCNA, and CISSP. Uh, with that being said, he works for Intel McAfee and Foundstone. Um, I know all three names sound familiar, but can you better explain that and tell us a little bit more about yourself, Rob? Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate you inviting me on the podcast. And so McAfee, Intel, and Foundstone are all kind of this uh, weird hypogeny thing. But in 1999, Foundstone and McAfee joined together um, and, to, and started working together. And then in 2004, McAfee and Foundstone actually became one company. Uh, later in 2010, McAfee was sold to Intel but was kept as a wholly owned subsidiary. That wholly owned subsidiary later in 2015 became, um, became Intel Security. And now in 2016, a whole big bad year later, we're breaking back out and becoming McAfee all over again, to, all to uh, John McAfee's demise, or, or pain and agony, whichever way, because he tried to sue us back for his name, which he lost, but it's unfortunate. But what's, what's Foundstone? Yeah, everybody hears the Foundstone thing. Well, Foundstone's been around um, since 1999, and a lot of names that you've probably heard before. Kevin Mandia, um, uh, the Silent CEO, um, Stuart, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but um, Richard Bielek, all, all wonderful people have walked, uh, Kevin DeWall, have all walked the halls of Foundstone, especially uh, you know people that are up-and-coming CEOs of... Um, Stuart Avery, I think it is, if I got it right for Silence. But all these people have walked... Stuart McClure. McClure, there you go. Stuart McClure. Thank you for fixing me. Stuart McClure worked, uh, have all walked the halls of Foundstone in one form or another and done things. And now they're running businesses of their own. And, and essentially, that's how we see it now only. Um, Foundstone used to be the hacking glory of Hacking Exposed and other publications. But now I think it's really moved on. We've, we still have people that are really leading the way in uh, pushing application security, which is where we think the penetration section is really moving towards. But we've also picked up steam in security operations and uh, incident response, trying to uh, knock the big boys off the block for IR on that standpoint, especially when it comes to our McAfee customers. Excellent, excellent. I'm looking at... Uh the the Foundstone Wikipedia page and wow uh, that's a pretty uh, impressive list of uh, people who uh, were involved in founding Foundstone uh, Stuart McClure being one of them uh, so I think it's safe to say he's now considered a uh, serial entrepreneur yeah you got Kevin Mandia who was the director of IR for Foundstone before he went out and started two other companies before Mandiant and then turn Mandiant into the, the behemoth that it is, and then later into uh, FireEye, and then uh, uh, Mr. DeWalt left, sold McAfee to Intel, and then turned around and took over FireEye and made it the wonderful household name that they've become, 
with the help of Mandiant. Um, yes. And, and, you know, we, we need all that Chinese uh, attribution that uh, Mandiant provides. Granted, it is tongue-in-cheek, but I had to do it. Well, I think there are some people at Foundstone from, uh, from I'm sorry, I was going to use their moniker name, from uh, CrowdStrike, but I don't remember any off the top of my head. Well, if we were talking CrowdStrike, then we'd be talking uh, Big Mean Russia and all the bears, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and attribution is a funny place when you start talking about it. I could spend a good amount of time on making fun of that to a way, to points unknown. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was just listening to the most recent uh, Risky Business podcast with Patrick Gray. No relation, although I do joke he is cousin Pat. And he was having a really good conversation with uh, the person who mains pwn, uh, maintains Pwn all the things on Twitter about attribution and where it's difficult and where it's easy and where uh, a lot of the mainstream are doing it wrong and how they could do it right and all of that. And it's like, okay, attribution overload. Yep, to give you an idea, like CrowdStrike is George Kurtz. George Kurtz used to be the CEO of Foundstone in October of 99. And he, then he later started CrowdStrike. So there's another person there dwelling in the wonderful fun. So in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it is said that you should be able to trace your lineage back to Helio Gracie. Uh, what I'm seeing here, at looking at the uh, Foundstone Wikipedia pages, if you're in information security, especially with a big consulting firm, you should be able to trace your lineage back to Foundstone. Is that something you would say is correct? Yeah, I would say that's pretty true. And then the reason I say that is because, you know, uh, it's like the six degrees of bacon, right? How close to Kevin Mandia can you get or how close to Foundstone can you follow your way back? And it's funny because our general manager, she likens Foundstone to bacon, which she calls it. Uh, the way she explains it is that, you know, you could have a, a product or a capability and while you deploy it, it seems mediocre, but if you wrap good consulting around it, it tastes better, right? It, and you're able to consume it and you like it and, you, and you'll go for it. And like everybody will eat bacon, right? But will they eat bacon uh, flavored marshmallows? Heck yeah, they'll eat bacon flavored marshmallows. But if you wrap bacon in a Brussels sprouts, would they eat that too? Probably they'd eat that too. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And in looking, I see that uh, the piece of software I was thinking about was SuperScan that Foundstone was behind. So it seems to be, I remember learning about it in SANS Audit 507 uh, for uh, uh, use, doing port scans as an alternative to NMAP. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, I, I don't know the tool specifically, but what I can tell you is that uh, Foundstone is built on making custom tools, right, and, and extending uh, tool capability in the open source market. And like, for example, our specialty is really transitioned from doing like scanning tools or penetration testing tools to moving to incident response, threat intelligence, and threat hunting. And uh, because we see that's where the, the desire and the need is for the, as, for the organizations moving forward. And for example, in, in that same vein, uh, Ismail Valenzuela, one of our global leads uh, at About Security, created a tool called Rostrador. And Rostrador is basically a Python script that you can wrap in an executable that allows you to do triage capability on the fly on any platform. And you basically collect it, collect your information in a forensically capable manner, but it also collects enough information that you can turn around and pivot that to use that for your hunting program. Awesome. And I will definitely uh, link that in the show notes so uh, we can uh, play with it, test it, and uh, hopefully get us some more exposure and some more implementation out across industry. So uh, at this point, 
instead of the news, because as listeners may have realized, we don't really talk the news a whole lot in this segment much anymore. There's really nothing juicy going on that's not political in nature, and and I want this to be a haven away from the ultra-political debates, discussions, and what have you. So this week, Rob and I are going to talk a little bit about threat hunting before we transition to his actual segments. So uh, Rob, can you tell us a little bit more about what threat hunting is and is not? So uh, I did a podcast, hopefully, um, you know, did another pod, another webinar later, not a podcast, but a webinar earlier today that maybe you guys can review it um, when it pops out and I'll, I'll tweet it out so maybe you guys can, it's kind of, I think it's coming out on February 8th, but really what we talk about in threat hunting is we want to pivot away from the norm. And the norm is, is oh, well, I'm going to go buy a threat feed and get my threat intelligence feed and it's going to go into my sim and then I'm going to go fight bad guys in my... And that's really an immature way of looking at it. Uh, the way I see that uh, from a threat hunting perspective is, is like, okay, so I'm going to fly over to South Kensington, England, and I'm going to study the bad guy traffic patterns in South Kensington. Then I'm going to come home to my home in Charleston, South Carolina, and, and look at the streets and figure out, okay, bad guys should live here, bad guys should live here, and be able to know that. And in reality, threat hunting is more about learning your environment, how bad guys can move in your space, understanding your capabilities, and then creating an environment where you have a movement to contact and you meet the enemy at your time and choosing. Not the enemy choosing when they can meet you on your territory. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's basically kind of, in a sense, it's kind of proactive purple teaming, if you will. Exactly. And it's... Purple teaming is more, uh, I guess, a red teaming with blue guys and, and, you know, basically seeing the back end of it. But what you're really looking at is what are you, what are you elevating your hunting after? Are you, are you building the right hypothesis, right, to turn around and take that hypothesis and, okay, what data sources do I need to collect that? So if you're looking for DCOM lateral movement, right, could I possibly use DCOM for lateral movement? Okay, cool. Has anybody ever done it before? You do a little Google foo, you find out, yeah, well, actually, some people have done decom lateral movement, and this is what it looks like. Well, the question is, do I have decom lateral movement in my environment? This is the essence of threat hunting. What, that's your hypothesis. What data sources do you need to collect? Turn around and review those data sources to ensure that one, either prove the negative that it doesn't exist, or was your hypothesis invalid and you needed to go back and re and go back and look at your data sets because you're not redu- you're not returning the values that you need. And then once you figure that out, you've developed a use case for look for that kind of lateral movement pay- key. And I think that's where threat hunting is the pinnacle peak of it is. Now, you can threat hunt with, you know, YAR rules and whatnot and scan other people, scan in people's environments with threat indicators, right? Indicators of compromise. But that, I don't think that's really threat hunting. I think that's more of, you know, you know a bad guy wears a gold chain and has, you know, a black hat and wears a, and has a balaclava. So that's what you're going to go look for. And when you don't find Don't forget that, the monocle. And the, oh yeah, all, all monocles too, right? So maybe and maybe he has a monocle hanging from his chest, you know, and gold and gold rings or something or whatever the case may be. But you create this paradigm and this stereotype of what a bad situation looks like, right? For example, maybe malware becomes your next bad guy. So you know, malware comes in two stages: 
drops a dropper on your workstation, exploits out of your box, but what about the browser exploit that comes in that never drops a file in your box and basically puts it straight into memory, right? Bad guys come in all shapes and sizes. It's depending on whether how you manage those expectations is how you're going to run the program, if that makes sense. Yes. So are there any specific tools that uh, you could use in threat hunting that you may not use, say, in a pure blue team arsenal or a red team arsenal? So I think that uh, there's some tools. There's definitely tools out there that you could use for a threat hunting capability, but I think a mastery in some of the basics um, helps a helps a team understand what they're looking for. And, and for example, you got to have a methodology, right? It, I hate to say this, but you can't hunt in the blind and you don't want to be Elmer Fudd looking at a, you know, don't be a Fudd, right? Don't go with your rifle going into the woods, looking at a rabbit hole, stick your rifle in the rabbit hole and wait for the rabbit to come out, right? Because if you're hunting like that, you're going to have the rabbit tap you on the shoulder and say, what's up doc? You know, and by the way, I'm stealing all your data. Or you may accidentally shoot your business application because it looks like Daffy Duck wrapped up in a rabbit. Does that make sense? Yes. And to piggyback off saying, don't be a FUD, I would, I would also just go ahead and throw the precautionary uh, tale out uh, in terms of when you're threat hunting. It's probably not a good idea to go spreading FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Just to go ahead and you know, piggyback <laughs> off you mentioning uh, Elmer Fudd, so I'll just mention IT Fudd, his, his, uh, his uh, nephew. Absolutely, and, and I completely agree with you 100% is that when we look at the, the way and things that we're trying to accomplish as a, as a security operation, fear, uncertainty, and doubt can definitely weigh, lay waste to a program in no short time. And that, you know, that's the same with attribution. Um, granted, Sure, Does do actors make bad mistakes and get caught making said bad mistakes? Absolutely. Can the FBI uncover, you know, capabilities or foreign uh, intelligence services un uncover and monitor uh, actor capabilities in a particular space or area? Absolutely. Can foreign militaries or active militaries monitor and squat on systems and, and put in rootkits? Absolutely, those capabilities are there. But I think somebody said, uh, said something very apropos that usually it's not the sexy conspiracy. It's the simple, plain, ugly conspiracy that is the one that, that proves to be true, right? And when you're looking at attribution, it's, that's the thing. But the question is, is what does attribution give customers as a whole? What does it give you to know that the Russians came and punched you in the nose? It's a human feeling is what it is. You want, you want retribution versus attribution. You want to be able to attack back. We don't like getting, we're Americans, we don't like getting our nose smacked, right? We want to smack it back. And I think that's really where the core of this attribution piece is and knowing who, who's attacked us is really tied to retribution or justice, right? Versus attribution, proving beyond a reasonable doubt. When you take that into another scenario, right? And you say, okay, well, maybe it is about retribution. Well, what's really the thing that can help us avoid being hit again, right? I mean, you can break um, actors down into pretty much four major, well, let's start. We can break it down into two major types, internal and external. Then we can take those internal and externals and break them out into three different types, whether it's hacktivists or script kiddies, whether it's cybercrime, 
and, or whether it's advanced persistent threat or nation state. But those all have a motivation, and with that motivation, they have a specific TTP, right? Absolutely. I mean, skiddies, they're going to make their mistakes. They don't understand how things work. Or hacktivists, you know, they want to be noisy to get their point across because they're doing it for attention. Uh, whereas cyber, uh, cyber criminals, they're doing it for financial gain. And then uh, whenever you get to the APT or nation state level, now there, there are far more political uh, ramifications uh, as a byproduct of that that definitely changes the motivation. So when, you when you're looking at you know, APTs, they don't want to be found. They don't want to be discovered until they're ready to do their activities or whatever that is. So I really see where those capabilities you know, blend well with people wanting to hide. But I also understand that you know, being that I've spent 26 years in the military and 16 of that been, has been in cybersecurity in one form or another, I'll ponder you this question. And granted, it's very fantastical and it would be entertaining to say the least. But humor me just for a few seconds. Let me take you down a road that's completely fictional, but plausible. I can go get you a laptop that looks just like it was made, a Lenovo laptop made in China, right? Has China keyboard, Chinese keyboard, everything. It's set up just like a Chinese laptop. And I can turn around and I can go get Chinese enabled software and throw Chinese enabled software on there just like it would be if you were typing on that keyboard in China. Well, then I am a wonderfully well-prescribed nation state, and I think, hmm, all I need is a very good hacker who doesn't speak Mandarin, and I need a linguist who does speak Mandarin, and from that standpoint, I can create malware by the simple act of changing a time zone and be able to create malware off a box that attributively looks like it came out of China. But I can plan it anywhere in the world. But it would look, if you tore it apart, exactly as if a Chinese operator wrote it. And that right there is the exact bullet hole in attribution. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, if you have a really, using your scenario, if you have a really good linguist and a VPN and messing with the time zone, that's all you really need. You, I mean, you didn't even mention a VPN, so you really don't even need that, really. You could use Tor. It's not that. It's not hard to use Tor to do the plant. Um, the 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 trick for us is, you know, understanding that how can we prove what we're looking at? Well, the only way we ever prove a crime is we either have DNA evidence, right, or we have we have somebody seeing you do it, right? There's a couple good web uh, not webinars, but um. YouTube videos of where Mandiant talking about them monitoring and they have like a screen capture of the Chinese guy going through his Google mailbox and setting up his Google things. Well, how do you think they got that? Somebody installed a plant on that box and basically was screen scraping everything that was going on while it was going on and they were recording and then they just added the dialogue after the fact. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's kind of creepy. Right, but that was one of the things that made Mandiant very popular. Is they were a DVSOB, a disabled veteran small owned business, uh, back in the day when they were uh, just supporting the FBI and OSI and a couple of other uh, military investigation agencies that a former OSI agent, Kevin Mandia, started. 
right? Supporting them in forensics, computer forensics, and they got onto some of these big cases supporting the FBI. And they do, not to say that they don't do really awesome work. I've met quite a few of them, and even my director uh, for my team right now is from Mandiant. Um, the, the key, I guess, is not the skill, but just the understanding that, you know, at that point in time when you need to have that information, you have that information. But who really pays attention or who really needs that information? And the attribution is really tied to law enforcement because I want to put somebody in jail and they need to prove it. And militaries because I want to blow somebody up or I want to go cause problems in their environments. And I need to be able to prove that to somebody that so I can go do something about it. Absolutely. With regards to everything that came out with the FBI and the Russian attribution, what what is your verdict given the facts that were... Or, Given the data, I don't want to say facts, but given the data that was published, what is your verdict on uh, the FBI's attribution to Russia uh, about the uh, power grid in Vermont, which turned out to be nothing, and the DNC? Oh, you're talking about the Grizzly Step data? Yes. Um, well, there's a lot of fun stuff about the Grizzly Step data that I giggle about. And, and and you have to be an an artist in threat intelligence to kind of figure out those pieces, right? And, and to, to put some pieces together and understand a few things of what they're trying to tell you without really trying to tell you. We have to give it to analysts, right? First of all, analysts are given a very close um, chain to walk or even cable, maybe fine spider thread to walk between giving away a source and a method that burns that source and method so they can never use it again, to being able to safel, safely disclose information that won't harm an ongoing investigation or understanding or collection asset that they may have. And when you look at the, some of the things they gave out, it's kind of interesting the way they gave them out, right? Some of them, some of them were just bad IP addresses. They've been bad IP addresses for a long time. Some of them were tour exit nodes. No duh, they're bad. Um, then you got, you know, Microsoft, Azure, Cloud. You mean the bad guys don't use cloud? What do you mean? They, you mean they, they only build non-scalable networks that they can use? That's kind of unique. Um, maybe some in AWS. Oh, amazing. They don't use AWS either. Well, I, I find that odd. And then the, the, the last two really were funny was Facebook and Twitter. Why do you think they would be using Facebook and Twitter? Obviously for communications, um, nothing stops you from uh, using it for command and control. Um, quite honestly, I see that quite frequently with Twitter. You can see a lot of bot type accounts that are just publishing what looks like absolute nonsense to us. But I mean, you can very easily have something like a Python script listening for certain phrases to execute certain actions. Uh, that would be my thought with that, uh, aside from the obvious uh, terms of communication, uh, as well as open source intelligence gathering and social engineering opportunities. And most well, of all, it's free. Yep. Well, it's free and it's a good form of command and control and absolutely, and everybody's gonna leave it wide open. And there's a little unknown article that was published in the early parts of the OPM development where the, the Chinese attackers, oh, look at that, here's a TTP development starting, where the Chinese hackers were able to use um, Twitter in order to use command and control. And they basically used a key in the, a key that was put in the tweet and then a picture that had the, uh, that had steganography in it that actually had the command in the image. So you can, you see a keyword or a key 
write a particular five or six letter digit key and then that key was used to take the image apart to pull out the commands that that, that, that particular um, bot needed to pull or action. And the only one of the few things, it was up for a little while and then it was taken down, unfortunately, because uh, the people that found it didn't want everybody to know that that was the technique that they were using. But there's some of us that pay attention to the threat intelligence and the things that goes up and we, and we talk to peers and whatnot and we hear these little things and while it's not widely known, it's still known that the obfuscation and the communication techniques that were used in that heist were relatively sophisticated to some degree. Not overly sophisticated, but they were sophisticated to a good point because they did have some good tools on there uh, that that were trying to do their best they can, but they didn't have the best tools, nor did they have the best people running in those operations. And, and I think, go ahead. Well, just to go with that whole Twitter thing, it's not very hard to write a Python script that pulls from a Twitter API that can watch a specific account, uh, say as a cron job, that basically looks for the key and has a logic statement of if you see this key then perform this action if you see this key then perform other action else uh, do this you know it's it's not that challenging I mean I'm by no means ultra savvy in Python whatsoever but I'm competent enough to the point to where I can write a simple script that's going to pull all tweets from a specific account and you know from that point you can dump it out for other functions you know it's just nothing but if then logic and and i don't disagree i guess from a an advanced actor's perspective is what you're looking at is how do you bury that in the normal right and i think that's the part that you know you have to bury it in the normal of an account or you bury it in the normal of an individual because the last thing you want to be be doing is popping a 70 year old lady that works for the office of personnel management who's never had a twitter account in her life right and then that way you can, or you, they see the constant pulling of the same account all the time from the same box. Those kinds of things lead to huge indicators of what's going on if you're watching your network and your network traffic capability. Um, but as we, we look for threat intelligence, really what we're trying to do is find the things that, and I, and I liken threat intelligence for customers is, what do you need for threat intelligence? Well, you really have three types of audiences that need threat intelligence. You have the threat intelligence for strategic people. Who are those strategic people, like board members and whatnot, where you want to be able to give them the high level, the trending, the analysis, so they make smart decisions. It's like uh, all the emergency detection and response tools right, right now are the, um, not emergency, enterprise detection and response tools are all the rage now. You know, get an EDR, save your life. But when you think about it, an EDR captures uh, an event after or during the delivery of that capability to your environment. And when you look at, okay, 79% of all the threats that walk in your vulnerabilities in your environment, if you're a risk manager, right, come from some kind of phishing, but you're not doing HTTPS inspection. Would that be a bad thing? Or would you need to reinvest your tools or capabilities? Because the last thing I'd want to do is bring the bomber into my house and let him blow the bomb in my house or try to keep him from blowing the bomb in my house. Much rather I'd like to keep him like I do with bollards is keep him outside my perimeter and keep him where he's spaced and let him blow up out there before he gets in my house. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I agree 100%. 
Uh, because a lot of it is, you know, you have to have the art of hiding in plain sight. Uh, one of my colleagues, Russell Von Tool, he wrote a tool called the Multi-Tool Multi-User HTTP Proxy. And basically all it is is a box that hangs out on the internet with um, an SSL certificate on it that allows him to get uh, traffic from various tools. Uh, I believe it was Beef, um, Interpreter, and... I want to think Empire's the third. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, he's probably going to be angry when he hears that I didn't remember the third tool. But either way, they all run on a specific proprietary port. And basically, with his proxy, what it allows him to do is communicate with his target uh, via HTTPS over 443. So doing HTTPS uh, inspection, that would mitigate that tool for the most part. Uh, but the thing is people want to be lazy about it and they don't something we'll get into a little bit later about like uh placement of sensors and what have you a lot of people don't know the right answer in terms of where to put things so that causes a completely different problem i would agree and that's where you know where threat intelligence we talk about strategic and then we can talk about operational you know making a decision right operational intelligence is about decision making when do i need to make a decision what am i making a decision on and then you have like for the U.S. military and for most intelligence agencies, there's really only three types of intelligence, strategic, operational, and tactical. Um, but some people have, have, have spread in IT that, you know, that tactical can also be technical information, and they're saying like tactical information is, you know, how does the techniques, tactics, and procedures of an adversary, and technical information is like indicators of compromise or specific software vulnerabilities or something along that lines. And to me, it's all tactical is what does the guy on the ground need? What does he need to know? He needs to know how Drydex works, right? He needs to know how that exploit works. Where an operational person needs to know, did I lose that guy's credentials? Is my data being actively sold on the darknet? Do I need to do something about this vulnerability because it has an active exploit and I need to patch it immediately? And that, and you know, strategic is more about looking that long-term vision. Am I making the right purchase of buying an EDR or do I need to spend the money on something like a sensor for HTTPS so that I can see? Or do I need to deploy bro sensors all over the place so I can see lateral movement inside my network when I have have no visibility in this broad flat land that I have inside my environment. The little things like that, when you're starting to look how you're tactically doing it, gets you to the point of understanding what audience you're talking to, whether it's a strategic audience, an operational audience, or a tactical audience. And then you tune your threat intelligence to those requirements. Absolutely, and that goes uh, in line pretty heavily with uh, my thought process when I'm talking about things like user training. So if you're training your people, I heavily advocate uh, three layers of training at a minimum. Uh, and that would be your general consumption, all the people within the organization, then technical training, and then executive training. Because they all three face different problems. Um, some of them are common, hence the reason you have your general consumption uh, training for people. And then obviously the technical team faces problems that executives and the general population uh, that they're not exposed to. Uh, just as executives have their own threats. And then if you really want to branch out, then you've got groups like human resources, accounting, contracting, and uh, media, uh, I'm sorry, public relations that have completely different uh, 
issues that they have to face and overcome uh, as part of their jobs. So to say that, you know, when you're looking at, at intelligence in a multi-layered approach in terms of strategic, tactical, and uh, technical, in, the, in that regard, I fully understand because, in essence, you're, you're streamlining the data that you have for the target audience, just like you would with training. Exactly, and I would I would agree 100%. And when you look at like, if you start from understanding your audience and your requirements, and you start to gather your information from a tactical perspective, like you were talking about sensor placement earlier, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that there's a process called um, intelligence um, uh, and preparation intelligence pre preparation of the battlefield IPB and there's a cyber version of the same thing and really what IPB tells us to, or guides us to do is what are the things that we need to do to properly understand the environment to, in order to start to collect and or process intelligence that we're we're getting in the environment and it's it's analyzing those key what's the key terrain that or key things that we are, you know, our jewels, our, our crown jewels, what are the things that we care about that we want to protect? And then what are those things that, you know, what are the high value targets? Not only our high value targets, things that um, would cause us not to keep our key, our key systems up and running, but what also would be key systems for an attacker to take? Like uh, a good example is I ask everybody, what's a high value target in your Active Directory environment? And they go, first the first thing, hands go up and they go, Active Directory Domain Controller. I'm like, really? That's awesome. You really think that that's key to you running your overall system on any given day or night? Can you answer that? How would you answer that? Honestly, I would say DNS before Active Directory because if they poison your DNS, it doesn't matter if people can authenticate, really. Okay. Well, when you when you say Active Directory, everybody thinks you know passwords, keys to the kingdom, right? But in reality, can assist can a, an environment operate in cache credentials mode for a significant period of time? Uh, that default answer is 120 days. To believe it or not, that cache credentials, if you don't modify Active Directory from the default state, you can keep cache credentials for 100 days. Sure, you can't log into a uh, a new um, maybe a new indicator, for example. Or a new or new service, but you can certainly use the current services that are running without a reboot before you have, before you cause an outage, right? And that's really where we take that you know that one step a little bit further and go, okay, well, what is that? What is that high value target? Is that a high value target for the for me, or is that a high value target for the enemy? And the enemy wants it, right? Because they they want it's the I find that domain controllers are like hacker crack. Once they get in the environment, they want to touch the domain controller. They just they feel the impulsive nature to go out and I gotta own the domain controller because it's like gold, right? You own the domain controller, you got everything. For us, it's for an incident response perspective. You own the domain controller. Okay, we, it's time to shut the network off and start all over and rebuild everything from scratch because you can't trust anything anymore. Right. Well, and, and with hackers going after the domain controller, I mean they can get the credentials elsewhere. I mean you don't have to touch Active Directory to get the credentials you need to go after the true high value assets. That application server that's hanging out, that's hosting a sensitive web application that you can watch for data to go back and forth from uh, the application to the database or even the database server or uh, defacing the website, compromising the SSL certificates, something like that. I mean that's just 
the tip of the iceberg. You can do all that stuff without touching the domain controller. You just need the credentials. And if you can sniff out uh, a domain admin, that doesn't necessarily mean you've ever touched the domain controller. I think uh, a lot of hackers uh, come from the train of thought that it's the ultimate slap to the face of the organization they are uh, engaging with if they uh, take over the domain controller. But I kind of think that uh, there are alternative uh, targets that could be of just as much, if not more, value. I mean, just like I said with DNS, if you can if you can start modifying their DNS records, which granted in an Active Directory environment, DNS is typically co-located co with Active Directory, so you would have to touch the server, maybe not necessarily the application, but if you can start messing with their DNS, then you, I mean, you can start inflicting some pretty serious damage that... You know, you could have cast credentials all day, but if people are getting redirected to malicious websites that continuously, uh, that are continuously dropping malware and bypassing their antivirus, you're you're raining a lot more uh, harm down upon that organization. Yep, and I think that really drives back down to um, you know when we talk about threat intelligence and how we use it in incident response, and we take those pieces and we kind of tie them together. Later ties into like how threat hunting works because I think uh, we call it the uh, some of our peers call it the the Lego blocks of security, right? You can't you can do certain things like you can do some incident response without threat intelligence. It's going to be kind of limited. You can do some threat intelligence without an incident response or any threat hunting but you you're only going to grow so far and you're only going to do so much threat hunting if you're not doing incident response or you're not doing uh, um, using some kind of threat intelligence to understand your adversary right and I think that really drives back to a, an article that came out a while back um, called the intelligence driven computer network defense you know and then an analysis of adversary campaigns by intrusion chain chains written by eric hutchins and mike Kloppert in uh rohan amin do you know which article i'm talking about can you can you figure out wh who i'm talking about here and, and what's the famous acronym that comes afterwards i'm uh drawing blank at this point actually the cyber kill chain came uh. from this lockheed martin document um and mike Kloppert, i got you know the sans uh, 578 course i went and took it from mike and mike's an awesome guy and eric hutchins is awesome and so is rohan but the the idea the idea of this article right is that i love everybody they love it and in the first but you know the first part of it you get right into the kill chain right and understanding intelligence driven computer network defense and the indicator life cycle and understanding okay what's the difference between between atomic indicators computed and behaviorals and and all this wonderful fun stuff and then you get into that whole intrusion kill chain and realizing that between reconnaissance weaponization delivery exploitation um, installation command and control and actions on the objective and delivery exploitation installation command and control and actions on the objective if you stop them at any one point in the attack you win right game over bad guy loses good guy wins yay and that was just really everybody took that to heart but what they missed is a little bit farther down in the article and it's amazing how many um, security professionals really haven't read this document because they know the cyber kill chain they know who wrote it they know where it came from but they can't go to table one in the course of action matrix to show you the tools that actually apply to the defensive mechanism that you're talking about in what phase. Like for example, how do you detect uh, reconnaissance? You're using web analytics. So if you're not recording 
the web logs coming off of your outbound web servers or your external facing web servers, or you're not analyzing your firewall ACL blocks and permissions, how are you going to define reconnaissance on your environment? You're not. It's just not possible, right? And but, but you get it, right? You, you get the understanding is that, that without reading and going through these, a lot of people do these. And then, you know, I've been, I, I've been a great fan of Lockheed Martin and, I've, and the defense information um, initiatives and, and people that have been working out in the defense because I've been in defense for the better part of 26 years. And seeing all the things and understanding, you know, being a guy who is doing cybersecurity for the, for the military and doing information systems for the military over a period of time, realizing that I was doing security the whole time and didn't realize it till I had gotten out of the military and looked back and then said, okay, well, we are doing the best practices. We are doing the right things. We are understanding what we need to do to secure the environments and seeing, you know, how hard it is to get into attackers, you know, and I still, it's 2017 and I still hear people say, well, I can't patch all of my systems. And I laugh because Back in 2006, I was patching systems over a 600 millisecond link, uh, satellite link, um, to almost 20,000 systems to 97% effectiveness with uh, Microsoft Systems Manager, right? And it's no, it's no easy tool. Those people that have managed it before, it was a nightmare to manage. It had a very complex passaging or package passing system messaging systems that could break on DNS on any day and yet it took a lot of care and feeding to make that thing work and be effective but when Configur came out and wiped out all my peers 3,000 some plus odd systems I had three systems compromised because I was patched within two weeks of my entire environment my peers they weren't patched in three months and the patch came out two months prior but missed their cycle Absolutely. And I think it's unrealistic for an organization to, to even expect to attain 100% patching. I, I think as, as long as the first number is nine and there is a second number, I think you're better than most. And while you could still be prone and you could still do your patching absolutely wrong if you're at 90% compliance with your patching, the thing is your, your, your attack surface uh, has significantly been uh, minimized. And in that regard, if you're mature enough as an organization to have 90-something percent success rates with your patching, then at that point you probably have the capability, ideally, to have other boundary defenses in place, other mitigations, uh, true defense in depth, if you will, so that, you know, like you said, you're getting three hosts infected as opposed to 3,000 just because you have that defensive posture in place. And, you know, I don't want to get on too much of a soapbox with vulnerability and patch management, but it's one of those things that if you stay on top of it, it's really not that difficult, especially now with Windows 10, with everything being a roll-up patch, as opposed to nickel and diming you left and right. Well, I think that's, I, I honestly think that that's what made me successful, is that I didn't, back in the day when, you know, when Microsoft wasn't doing a really great job and, and and doing their patch management effectively and not causing you know something to break and their quality of control was not really all that excellent i really had to fight my team to basically go we're patching everything we don't care what it is what it comes out we're just we're not going to care we're just going to keep 
moving forward at the same level. Microsoft moves forward, and you know what? I'm not the smartest man on the block, but I'm pretty sure that they're a lot smarter than me about their operating system. So if we just stay current, even if it does break something, at least we have prior knowledge that it may break something. But when we look at it, um, that's one aspect of it. But I think the other aspect that you're trying to talk about is really there's three aspects of risk, right? There's threat, there's vulnerability, and business impact. And you've got to decide whether you're going to be threat-centric or vulnerability-centric. And I think as you as you're as a blood as a uh, growing organization, budding organization trying to move into security or trying to do a good job in security, you should really focus on the things that you control, right? And what you're good at, right? Instead of the things that you have to use influence to control. And I think when you can manage your own vulnerabilities and your own risks with that respect, then you can start leaning out into the threat-centric space and understanding means and motive, and then trying to remove the means and motive or lower that or mitigate that based on a particular actor or capability. But if you don't manage some of the vulnerability, then you're not gonna be able to manage that aspect of you're just gonna leave the door wide open. But I do agree with you 100% that vulnerability and malware, they're gonna exist forever. The more we think we're gonna get rid of them, the more they keep popping up. Um, they're popping up every every month. I mean, I remember back in 2006 where we were only seeing maybe 30 patches from Microsoft and now we're getting close to 200 every year. So I don't think it's going to stop. The one thing that I would add is that and this is where incident response comes in. And now you're going to, for me, you're going to see all three, threat hunting, threat intelligence, and incident response all come into risk management and helping you define your risk management, right? Threat in uh, threat intelligence is more about means and motive. Vulnerability is about threat hunting, right? Understanding what you're, where you're vulnerable at, and how you're vulnerable. And then response is about managing that business impact. When you tie all those three together, and you use a good program to put all those pieces together, it doesn't matter if they pop you in a vulnerability because you're right on top of them and you close the door right after they opened it. Absolutely. Right? It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter if the bad guy walks in through the front door if I blow him right back out the front door with my 12-gauge shotgun, for lack of a better way to put it, right? Oh, absolutely. And let's take this as a good segue to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to engage in more threat intelligence and incident response uh, discussion. Stay tuned. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. Attention listeners, have you ever been interested in recording a podcast of your own, whether it be information security, technology, cooking, or even flags? Look no further. Zencaster is here. Zencaster is a cloud-based online solution that provides each guest with a separate track. WAV files, built-in voice over IP, cloud drive integration, automatic post-production, and a soundboard for live editing. If you are interested, go to Zencaster.com, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com, and enter coupon code APS Podcast. 20 for a 20% discount. Once again, that is Zencaster, Z E N C A S T R.com. I hope to listen to you soon. And we're back. With me this evening is Rob Gresham. We've already talked about threat hunting, threat intelligence, vulnerability management, incident response, FUD, 
Smart, Cyber Kill Chain, John Strand, Paul Asadorian. Miter, the attack model. <laughs> Michael Santarcangelo. So we, we've talked about a lot, but uh, in this final segment before we say goodbye, we're going to talk about how to create and maintain an effective SOC. Uh, SOC being SOC, not Special Operations Command, and not the cloth thing you put over your foot when your feet are cold or you're wearing shoes, but a security operations center. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about creating and maintaining a SOC. I think it's, you know, it's uh, it's back to, you know, how tall are you to ride this ride, right? Everybody wants to build a security operations center, but really do you have the depth and breadth and capability? But what we want to go back and, and roll around and, and uh, figure out is, we're doing security operations, right? Do we truly need a segmented center that starts to handle these things in a more programmatic way, right? And that's really about building a security operations center. But can you start with security operations? Absolutely. And it's really just like it says, it's right, security operations. What are the things that you need to do for security that helps you control the operations, whether it's managing your MDM, your mobile device management tool, whether it's managing your AV. Um, there's really three primary levels, right? There's, we call them level one, level two, level three. And, and, and when we look at it, level one is your basic script answering phone capability, right? It's your first response capability. And that extends down to your first responders. Right, who are the people that are going to go touch that laptop, and also the people that are on the phone that's going to answer that security question when somebody has, Hey, I got a spam, or Hey, I got this pop up on my desktop. Rather, you know, it could be the help desk, it could be the, the level one in some scenarios. But when you look at it from a scripted perspective, level one is scripted tasks. There's a security event, and I need a scripted task to be followed. It's usually where you do your first triage collection capability. If then see, I grab, if I see this, then I'm gonna grab triage information. If I see this, I'm gonna grab memory. If I see this, I'm going to, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I'm gonna put in this containment mechanism. You talked earlier about providing simple, smart, effective incident response plans, right? And you know, with you, whether you start with your incident response policy or your security op, operations manual. It's really about understanding where you're going to go and how you're going to build this capability in your environment and how you're going to leverage that security operations center as a whole. And, and when we start talking about security operations centers as a whole, we really liken it to understanding, okay, well, what's your vision? What are you trying to do? And what you really want to do is draft and document that capability. What's your mission? What's your charter? You know, how does that align to your business goals? How does that play into stakeholder identification? Who is going to be responsible for owning this security operation, right? Is there a steering committee that's going to drive this? Where's the risk management play into it? And then as you develop out of that, you know, you kind of want to define, you know, where are you going? What do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? Do you want to be a world-class sock? Or do you just, you know what, I just want to make my, 
my my environment as secure as it possibly can. Maybe I, you know, I'm, we're not a big enough organization to be a world-class SOC, but we want to act like one. We want to understand our environment. We want to have roles and responsibilities. We want to own the process, right? We want to have consistency. We want to have service levels. We want to understand our key performance indicators, right? We want to be able to evan, uh, evaluate, plan, and prepare, right? Those three concepts that we've been talking, the underpinning of all the things that we've been talking about is understand your environment, plan for it, and prepare for things to break, right? And then, you know, we want to go in and we want to know our limits, right? We want to know what can we do? You know, how much staff am I going to have? Am I going to get more staff? What are my severity levels? How am I going to manage a priority and event versus a low priority event you know what are my assignment and escalation and resolution procedures this is about the point where you'd start to decide whether or not you're going to need a security operations manual or a run book right how do you run that team and make consistency right how are you going to manage your instances what are the best practices that you want to maintain and what are some of the limitations that you have um, whether they be cultural or organizational, right? And then as you move forward a little bit further, you start to see all these things that you are missing, right? And you, okay, well, now I, I need some expertise. Well, where do you get it from? Do you, do you go out and grab somebody's capability and, you know, say, hey, you know, I love these consulting firms that will, you know, we, we bring the bot to you, build, uh, build, operate, and transfer. We'll help you build it, staff it, you know, operate it for a little while and then we'll transfer it over to you and you get all the employees that go with it, right? Or or is it maybe, you know, we embed staff augmentation, which is my personal favorite, right? And I'll explain why in just a minute. Or the another personal favorite is the managed security services provider where, you know, you partner the lower end of the easy repeatable stuff with a team that that's their job. They know how to automate that and you're leveraging their smarts and their capability to make it more efficient in your environment. And I think a lot of customers would be remiss if they could understand where they could use managed security uh, provider with staff augmentation to get a great leverage capability. I think uh, what we do really well on the Foundstone team is we have this program called the Foundstone Threat Researcher Program, which is basically we do staff augmentation into Security Operations Center, and we leverage the brain power of the whole hive, right? Um, all my guys in New York, I got guys in Denver, I got guys in California, I got guys in, in Atlanta, and we all work together right to raise the collective capability of all the teams that we're managing and all the teams that we're supporting from a threat research standpoint and from a threat response capability give them long-term staffing and the customer doesn't have to worry about paying the big bucks to to their own employees or maybe their own employees will leave right because we're taking care of them we're we're doing that care and feeding we're making sure that they're getting the right training and capability but we're also ensuring that you know you have a reach back into an architectural expertise that you have different points of view in how operations work and how an assessment or an incident response or you can surge an incident response capability and then you know the last thing is constantly ensure that you continually improve your environment well that means you need to measure something. You need to understand what's going on. You need to align that to business goals and have that iterated iterative uh, approach to be able to understand what you're measuring and what you're reporting and where that value is being given back to the stakeholders that invested in you. And then when you've got all this together, 
then you can go after establishing a vision and understanding how this is all going to play together, right? And then take that with anticipation, prevention, detection, response, and recover and remediate to be able to see how this drives the business to be more secure as a whole. And that's really the foundation of what we start because really when you look at the SOC, the SOC has four primary services, monitor, isolate, evaluate, and manage. I need to monitor things that are going on. I need to isolate events and incidents as they occur. I need to evaluate my security systems and software and ensure their signatures are up to date, their change control things, configuration management, adjust to the changing IT operational environment, acquire new tools when the capabilities are there. And then I need to be able to manage the infrastructure that I have and solve those problems and management capabilities. And some of those, right, monitor and manage, could be easily um, outsourced to an MSSP that's really good at managing firewalls and IPS rules and, and changing and patching systems as you need. Maybe so a little bit of evaluation there can be done. Or status monitoring and looking at the firewalls and doing big data analysis and understanding what the problems are. But what you really can't outsource in your environment is your incident response. You're always gonna have a first responder. And that first responder, if you don't train them well, will unplug that, that uh, piece of malware on that one system that starts a chain effect of a logic bomb that takes down your entire environment. And that will just be a bad day. And you won't know that, that you could have solved that problem. Well, maybe that's blissful ignorance, but I'm always afraid that that's going to be the case where I fall into play. You know, I don't ever want to be that guy at 5 o'clock who discovers the breach that's happening, right? At 5 o'clock on Friday, it makes for a bad day. And, you know, I, I responded to a customer that had a very similar event where the ransomware that was taking over their environment kicked off at 5 o'clock. And by 7 o'clock, it had infected 900 systems in their environment and locked them all down. You know, who wants to call their boss when that happens, right? It's just a bad day for everybody. Joe, you have anything good to add right now, or am I just keep me going? I'm on a roll. Oh, man, I've got so many talking points on this, it's not even funny. So first, as a disclaimer, the company I work for does have an MSSP function. We, we do function as an MSSP for some clients. We do maintain a 24-7 SOC. Getting that bias out of the way, I think having the ability for... A company that isn't isn't big enough or mature enough or doesn't have the culture to maintain their own soccer their own security uh, operations uh, to augment using an MSSP or a SOC it's a great thing because you're gonna get expertise that you're not gonna get anywhere else well you're gonna get at other MSSPs perhaps but it's gonna be hard for you to find and if you don't have the budget you're not going to be able to get that kind of talent yourself given the confines that you're in. You can augment that with some staff to be able to perform your security functions and honestly uh, get you in a better security posture than you would have been in before. As you grow, you could either evolve the scope of the SOC or even you know stand up your own SOC if your organization grows to that size. But having a SOC, having that first line of defense, someone to watch. So if you have someone running vulnerability scans as a proof of concept, your phone can ring or you could get an email saying, hey, I'm seeing this host do this. Is this legit? Uh, something to that effect. And I think uh, many organizations out there are kind of missing that at this point. <clears throat> I've seen it from my own experience. Uh, organizations will hire a security guy because, well, 
something mandates that they have a security guy or the CEO was on the golf course with another CEO that hired a security guy and decided that he wanted to hire a security guy too. You know, you, you need to understand the motivations behind security of an organization to begin with. And, and once that is uh, determined, then you can really ascertain to what level uh, you're going to go. Because, you know, you may be able to, in-house, you might be able to maintain level one and level two. You might just need to outsource level three. You might just need to outsource your dedicated incident response functions outside of just monitoring. You may only need to outsource your monitoring, but just understand that by outsourcing, you're not giving up all of your liability either. Uh, depending on the way your contract and service level agreements are written, you may give up some liability, you may share some liability, but at the end of the day, you are still responsible for your organization as well. And that's a misconception that I just wanted to clear the air on right you know, out the gate. Absolutely. And then I think, you know, when, and I, would, I think you would agree that where the MSSP comes into play, right? A lot of customers think the MSSP is going to save them from the big problem that they have. And then they get that email. Hey, this system might be doing something bad. You might want to do something about it. And then they look at you and they go, why did I pay for you to go do that? And that's really, you know, just because you outsource some capabilities of your MSSP doesn't absolve you from the risk and the management and the responsibility to fix those problems. And would you agree? I, I would certainly agree. And the thing that I would uh, caution on that is anytime you're entering an agreement with another organization for a partnership, a managed service provider of any sort, uh, or just a service level agreement period, you need to go over the contract with a fine tooth comb to make sure that the expectations you have are accurately defined in the documentation that you are establishing with the other organization so that you're not feeling like the partner is coming up short when in actuality you may not have actually got, you may not have asked the right question to get what you think you're getting on the contract. So I would, I would 100% agree with that. And then I think that really you have to look at your security operations center and kind of what are the things that you you want to insource or outsource and understand how they play into the whole grand scheme of things, right? Whether you're going to do real-time analysis and who's going to answer the phone or the triage or what's your intel and trending analysis and how that creates, what's your incident response analysis capability, your artifact analysis, how are you going to manage all your security operation tools, how is you're going to audit yourself and ensure that you don't have an insider threat problem and role in the uh, role switching and monitoring capability along with your scanning and assessment and then lastly outreach right in order to make to sharpen the saw and make your sock faster better stronger you have to outreach and see who's doing it better you know i always am amazed you know to to know about the target breach and then talk to my friends like paul melson who who's leading threat intel out there and and see where they've come from you know just a few years back when you know target was all the rage to had to know that they're leading the retail sector isacs um ability and security operations from a standpoint you know there's only really one rival in their space and that's probably walmart and when you look at what they're trying to do and what they're trying to attain they're just really knocking it out of the park from a security operations team but the the I think the trick and the key is understanding what you want to do and how you want to man that and then, you know, have a way to build that team, you know, and how do you build that team over time, whether it's 
partially outsourced or it's maybe a staff augmentation. And when we talk about, you know, the staff augmentation with the Foundstone threat researchers, right? But we also talk about, you know, how, what are the tool sets that you need? What are the, you know, levels of experience you need between different team members? And we, we've done some things when we talk about threat content engineering, right? That the SIM is the be all end all of everything to go into it. But again, you know, crap in, crap out, for lack of a better way to put it. If you put crap into your tool and you don't tune your tools and that's going to send it to the SIM, it's just going to clog up your SIM and make it even worse, right? So I would turn around and do yourself a favor and go back to your tools and tune your tools to your customer environment um, and then basically tune that into the SIM. So a lot of times we do this this exercise called threat content engineering where I take EPO or which is ePolicy Orchestrator from McAfee and it really doesn't matter, blue code. And I look at the tool itself of what does it produce and then analyze what it produces and how that relates to how it's going into the SIM and then do my analysis of how that benefits the customer and then turn around and go back to the to the SIM and say, okay, I need these logs, these capabilities, and these events in order to determine these kinds of uh, use case scenarios. And that's that's the only thing. Drop everything else until I tell you differently. And that's where I like the MITRE ATT&CK framework because it really builds you on a foundation of how do I build my SIM? How do I put those pieces into that security operations center? where use cases don't run amok, right? Because use cases run amok are just like signature or firewall rules run amok. We had a, a firewall in, uh, in uh, Doha that had is the largest firewall in theater. And uh, when I did an analysis of it, it had 10,000 rules in it because every time somebody needed something, they just poked a hole in the firewall and they got their approval. And meanwhile, each packet had to go through 10,000 rules. Well, no wonder the, the firewall was having a bad day. So wouldn't you do the same thing to your SIM and you have 10,000 rules every event should go through, you're gonna have a bad day with your SIM not performing and living up to the expectations and all the hype that you know your vendor gave it or you gave it uh, to your leadership. So you really wanna make sure that you're, you're taking that due diligence to understand what are you putting in and tuning your tool to make sure that it produces the output that you expect. It's the, going back to that measure and manage capability that we talked about before, right? And that's where we, we tie in those threat researchers and those threat content engineers because one thing that I've noticed is that you can't be a threat guy and be a tool guy too, right? You're either really good at bad guys and you understand bad guys and you know how to use any tool that becomes available, but you may not be a subject matter expert in ePolicy Orchestrator or FireEyes HX or um, StealthWatch, but I know what the tool does. I got the capabilities of it, but I, I really just, I need this capability. I, in StealthWatch, I need to know what ports and what protocols and maybe user agent strings or what are the data flows that look for HTTPS coming out of these systems. And so that I can turn around and tune that tool and that capability to go into the SIM and, and give me a detection capability that's worthwhile. Absolutely. I mean, you can have all the data in the world, but if you don't know what to do with it, why have it? Uh, an analogy I came up with on a client site last week is you're going to get all this data and this data is going to be a giant iceberg, glacier, whatever you want to call it. It is up to you to refine that data and fine tune it to turn it into a beautiful ice sculpture. And then 
it is up to you to maintain it and keep the temperature at a level to where it will remain a glass, uh, an ice sculpture as opposed to a boil of a uh, bowl of water, right? And I think in, in today's taxonomy, we're seeing everybody race to get more and more data. When I mean, there's plenty of meaningful data out in front of them, and you know, understanding the tools. Yeah, there, there's a great advantage to understanding the tools, but I think there's a greater value in understanding the threats and how the threats are operating than to just be down in the trenches with tools. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, for a security operations center, that's, you know, that's where you're really starting to lead the things. And we've got a couple of reference models when we talk about it in one of the customers that we work with, right? There's really four components for organizing, right? There's leadership, how are you going to manage the service, how are you going to execute that capability, and what services that you're using. And when we, when we try to build an organization and we put pieces into it, we really kind of break the security operations center into three major components plus augmentation right if you're going to use an mssp that's going to be an additional capability but um, we look at it as operations how do we do monitoring day-to-day -day monitoring detect and respond and then what's the advanced cyber services right what is the threat intel capability that we're going to bring in threat hunting our advanced uh incident response capabilities or crisis management or maybe our forensics or e-discovery or data loss prevention team. And then lastly, it's the security engineering, right? Um, where is the threat content engineering for the tools? Where are the SOC systems? And maybe the security products that you're having managed and how those are being managed? Because operations doesn't need to be bothered with the daily patch cycles of what's going on. They need to be paying attention to the monitoring and the detection of the rule sets and maybe generating some new rule sets and responding to events that are occurring. But the engineering team needs to make sure that the products are moving forward, right? Last thing I ever want to rock up into an environment and see a sim that's you know, four patches back or go in and look at their IPSs and all their interfaces are put in administrative bypass, right? Is they're not helping the customer in any way, shape or means from that perspective. Absolutely. And that goes back to that debate uh, that we saw a few months ago about the MSSP that put the sensor in the wrong location. Yep. Placement, we were talking about this before we even uh, started recording, you know, with, with regards to sensors. Uh, there are strategic locations to place your sensors. You don't just place it uh, at some tertiary location because you have the rack space and the cabling for it. You place it at a location because that's where you're going to get the most value out of it based on the data that's passing through it. You know, if you're going to be running something like, say, Passive Vulnerability Scanner or an IDS, you're not going to connect it to some, you know, Layer 2 switch. You want it to be in your core switch. You want it to be in your router. You know, you need some of the capability to be in your DMZ. There's as much of an art to this as there is a science. <laughs> I would agree 100% where sensor placement is an art capability, but it's also, it's understanding your adversaries. What are your adversaries gonna do and, and how they move in the environment? And, and that's really, you know, take that and take uh, the intelligence preparation of the battlefield, understanding where your key, key terrain is, where your enemy is going to move, what are the restricted areas of movement versus the areas of high availability, you know, your switches being, you know, high speed freeways and your routers being, you know, an intersection capability. Where do you want to meet the bad guys, right? Um, 
And, and that's, you know, that allows you to put in traffic control capabilities that you meet them, you know, just like the, the Spartans met the, the, uh, met, the, met the hot gates, right? Met the Persians at the hot gates. They picked the point in time that they wanted to make their enemy. They didn't need a thousand warriors. They only need 300 to do enough damage. And I think if you use the right resources and put the sensors in the right spot and cover the right things, you'll be able to do a lot more effectiveness with less people because we've been doing it with security professionals. We're not growing any more significantly faster. We've got to be better and more automated and more orchestrated with the tools that we have to build a, a decent and viable security operations center. And I think that's, you know, tying those pieces in and those things together just basically takes your vision, your strategy, and your management and your capabilities to new levels. And, and looking at it from that capability and taking those mindsets helps the customer, helps you, helps see the value in what you're trying to achieve. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about creating value for the client if you're if what you're doing is not providing some level of value to the client then why are you doing it exactly and i think that's where the the security operations or the m uh the the mssp or staff augmentation is showing and demonstrating that value you know i got great guys on my team that basically go in and and, uh, and demonstrate to the customer every day that th the reason we pay them the big bucks is because, you know what, they bring big value back. And it's worth, it's worth the money to them to show how we can leverage that capability in their environment. Absolutely. Why should a company pay your company or my company to come in and do something in terms of stand up a sock or outsource as an MSSP if we're not augmenting their staff and providing some sort of value to them somehow? I mean, if it's if it's expertise you need, okay, great. Make sure that that's the value that you are seeking. If you are, uh, if it is staff augmentation you're looking for, uh, as opposed to just expertise or training, make that clear. But you know, in dealing with a sock, it's a lot more than just watching packets go across a Norse map. Oh. Don't get me started on Norse's IP Viking map, right? Because I'll just freak out and have a bad day. Um, I love ThreatBut. <laughs> I love ThreatBut. It's probably the funniest thing on the face of the planet. I loved it when my friends brought it to me and showed me to it. Because when people used to tell me that Norse map was threat intelligence, I would just literally freak out. Um, it's cool to look at. It was awesome to have in your sock as a, you know, this the uh, Kaspersky globe and all the shooting stars running around it and all that capability. But in reality, it really wasn't providing any value to the customer and it wasn't giving them the, the understanding of the threats that was coming into their environment. Um, when, I, when I try to understand Security Operations Center the best that I can, I really understand that we're people and we need to have value, we need to have capability and we need to understand and we need to be able to communicate and much like Michael leads out right um, with this is that we're a small community we need to share we need to and, and give back to the community in order to be able to help the community and one of the things that I, I love to do with customers is work myself right out of a job right go in there I don't want to be a consultant in your life forever I want to be able to hand the reins to you and go you know what absolutely you're big enough to ride this ride now 
I appreciate it. I'll see you on the sunrise and, you know, we'll see you on the other side. And, you know, you and I will be presenting at cons together. It'll be a great time. Now I'm going to move on and go help somebody else who needs my help. You know, it's not like being the Lone Ranger or anything like that, but it's definitely I want to work myself out of a job and give some other people some capabilities so we could spread the love and give somebody somebody else some more help. Oh, absolutely. And with that being said, it, it we're not gone forever. If, if they need our help, they know where to reach us. Absolutely. So with that being said, we're going to take our final break. And when we come back, uh, we will say goodbye and get some parting pieces of wisdom from Rob. Stay tuned. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. And we're back from our final break. Through the course of these podcasts, we've talked about threat intelligence, threat hunting, incident response, Elmore and IT FUD, the SMART model, Michael Santarcangelo, John Strand, Paul Asadorian, just to throw out, an, oh, we also mentioned uh, Patrick Gray, and, uh, you know, I, I must call out Breaking Down Security, and uh, those guys, Tracy Mayleaf, and uh, also, actually, and Gal with... David Bianco, too, right? The Pyramid of Pain? Yes, absolutely. And I, and I forgot to call out uh, Amanda Berlin with Breaking Down Security. Uh, and I just want to go ahead and mention uh, Jerry Bell and Andrew Collat as well while we're on the name-dropping spree. Uh, we've also talked about the uh, kill chain. We've talked about a myriad of people such as Stuart McClure, um, Kevin Mandian, of course. Um, we've talked about vulnerability management, threat intelligence. Um, we've talked about a lot. Uh, and... Unfortunately, all great things must come to an end. So at this time, we're going to say goodbye to Rob. Uh, he's going to give us some wisdom, and then we'll be off. So, Rob, um, tell us how you want to be contacted, if you want to be contacted. Uh, give us a few shameless plugs for anything you got going on, any speaking engagements or any cons you're going to. Uh, and then... Two different parting pieces of advice. One for the seasoned IT professional, uh, InfoSec professional, and one for the beginner just breaking in. All right, awesome, thank you. So you can always reach me at Twitter, right? At uh, RW Gresham is one of my handles, and I have another one, but I try to keep that one quiet because I they leverage it. But if you can find it, you can find me there. Um, also, if you're looking around and you're uh, looking on LinkedIn, you can find me on LinkedIn and just look for me there and I'll be more than happy to link up with you and have a chat. The, the other piece is, is that you can always reach us at, uh, reach my team at foundstone at intel.com and be able to uh, reach one of us if you need, if you heard something that sounds good to you and you want to be able to you leverage our services and capability from the Foundstone team. And then... You can reach, you can see some of my work, and uh, I have uh, threat intelligence, not a wild goose chase, uh, goose, goose chase, sorry, uh, webinar that I'm doing for Intel that's going to be published on the 8th of February, which I'll also be at RSA at that time. So I don't know, actually, no, I'll be in New York that time, and then uh, next week I'll be at RSA. So maybe I'll get some good, good kickbacks on those and some good. Uh, uh, input coming back from the uh, from the webinar that we're doing there and then I'll be at RSA over the Valentine's I've taken my Valentine with me to RSA unfortunately she's gonna come back come a little bit later so those two things for the seasoned and for the novice right 
I think this one's going to kind of fit both of them. And then really the new objective is really just prevent the attacker's success. You start winning when you detect the attacker, right? It's detect all the things, right? Try to protect and, and, and prevent as much as possible. But when you detect them, right, and you stop them, we all win, right? It's not about um, being successful at just prevention. It's being successful at detection because zero days and exploits and whatnot are constantly changing, right? But post-exploitation techniques and how they use that box and how they get data off that box, those things don't change that often. All those capabilities, right? A, a, uh, they're going to use if they're going to live off the land, they're going to use PowerShell just like you and I, or they're going to use NetBIOS, right? The key is detecting that compromise and understanding it, right? Whether it's client-side exploitation, persistence, lateral movement, and you know, you just want to be able to see that and then respond, right? The capability is the sooner you respond, the less damage they can do to your environment. And then, you know, as we're moving through these pieces and these environments and understanding what's going on, right? We want to make sure that we build hunting teams, right? And you can build hunting teams that move from passive detection to proactive defense by just leveraging your hunting team and just do it easy. Build muscle memory. Do an hour a week. Do two hours a week. Do two hours a day. But build those capabilities. And maybe you have to leverage third-party IOCs for a little while until you start building your own. But understand that the team requires multidisciplinary skills, right? It, you just can't, to be a hunter, you just can't be an endpoint guy or you can't be a network guy. You can start out that way, but you really got to be both. And you've got to understand the attack cycle of how does the attack work, right? And understand that detection reaction mechanisms within each phase. And just proactively go after those things that you want to hunt for. Create that hypothesis, gather those sources, analyze those sources, and determine if your hypothesis is true. And practice that, because once you start practicing it, it becomes muscle memory. And you know, before you know it, you couldn't do, you know, you couldn't do 20 push-ups yesterday, but if you did one push-up a day for a week, right for every day and you did one push-up today on monday and two push-ups on tuesday before you get to the end of the week you'd be able to do 20 push-ups and that's really what it's about because in all it's about people right it's not about the tools it's not about the capabilities it's not about the procedures it's about people we need to train 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 and make sure that we build effective cyber defenses with highly trained people that understand what they're doing, right? And they understand the bad guys, right? It, it, when we build good, we have this this uh, thing in our team that we talk about um, people, process, and technology, right? It, when we talk about it's all about people because people build great processes that are tied to technology that move technology more effectively. And I think from good things, from an, an advanced guy to a media to a mediocre, to a, a newcomer is, if you're gonna use a tool or a capability, learn that tool, right? But it's really about learning your capability and training on that capability, reaching out, listening to podcasts, going out and playing with new tool sets, going to B-sides. If you're afraid to talk, then pull up your pants, you know, pick up your britches, grab a new book, grab a microphone, and start talking and helping sharing what you know. Because, you know, the only dumb question is we have all heard more times than 
more times than not, the only dumb question is the one question that's never asked, right? So when we understand what we're doing, it's about, we're fighting people on the other side of this thing. So the only way cops find criminals is they use cops that act like criminals to fight criminals. If we could use computers to fight criminals and like minority report, we'd have done it already, right? But we can't. People find bad guys. It's plain and simple. So we're not going anywhere. We're not gonna have tools that make it any better, but we're gonna have tools that help our processes and our, and our capabilities and become more efficient, right? And we'll build better TTPs and better tactics and better capabilities, right? Use honey tokens if you can. Get that, you know, canary in the coal mine scenario and use those capabilities to, to better benefit your organization. You know what, Joe? I really do appreciate spending the time with you today. You know, while it's been a long, it's a long haul today to be able to chat with you and do this, this podcast, you know, it's been really enjoyable to talk with you and talk to your listeners. And hopefully, you know, we gave some good input or gave some good points to those people out there so that they could use this capability and bring it back to their teams and help their teams do a better job. Absolutely. I think there's going to be a lot of value to be uh, gained from listening to uh, these episodes. And thank you for taking the time out of your day to uh, record this podcast with us. Uh, it's not every day we get someone of uh, your caliber uh, with the experience you have um, to actually, you know, kind of go behind the curtain, if you will, uh, about your experiences. Um, so for that, thank you very much. Um, to contact uh, me, I'm on Twitter at C underscore 3 Joe. The podcast and blog are on Twitter as at ADV Persist Sec. Uh, the website is advancedpersistentsecurity.net. Uh, the Slack channel is aps dash opensource.signup.team uh, we have a MailChimp mailing list uh, you can sign up for that on the website um, I'm going to be speaking on February 8th at the ISC Squared chapter in Atlanta I will also be co-speaking uh, with Ben Shipley at B-Sides Nashville on April 22nd and I will be uh, co-presenting with uh, Tracy Infosec Sherpa Mayleaf at B-Sides Charm in Baltimore on April 29th and 30th. Uh, there are more opportunities coming. I'm just awaiting confirmation or uh, rejection, but uh, there's a lot more events that I do plan on attending. Uh, most notably that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, I do fully intend on attending Circle City Con, possibly Carolina Con, and because I'm local to Knoxville now, B-Sides Knoxville. Uh, with that being said, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or grievances, email podcast at advancedpersistentsecurity.net. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.